read First Peter uh, chapter three, verses twenty through twenty-two. Because they formerly did not obey, obey when God's patience w- waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought uh, safe, uh, safety through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Now, uh, as I said, over the past couple of weeks, we've we've really uh, tried to tackle uh, throughout our, our church and other campuses as well a difficult passage in the New Testament. And First Peter three eighteen through 22 is a somewhat difficult passage in the New Testament. It presents many challenges for us uh, from an exegetical or an interpretive position. Now, while we are sure that the crux of this passage, and that, and that is the real driving point of those verses, is the victory that Christ celebrates over sin and death, that that is the real crux of this, that we have this great victory and we serve a victorious Christ, uh, and he had this victory over sin and death. There are, there are some other things that we can, can celebrate uh, from this passage. There's some important elements that we should uh, consider as believers. For example, in this passage, Peter alludes to baptism uh, in relation to the story of Noah and the ark. Noah's story is one of the most repeated stories in, in modern culture that comes from the Bible. Um, you, you would find unbelievers and people who are who don't attend church will tell you they've heard of Noah and the ark. Uh, and, and so it's a very, very well um, uh, repeated story from the Bible, especially when it becomes for little children. I recall my days as a little child in Sunday school uh, uh, learning about how and why God saved Noah and his family. I learned that Noah had been chosen by God to construct and to build this this boat, this ship that was called an ark. And God was very specific about the size of the ark. And in those days, I even learned that they didn't use inches and feet and to measure. They used something called cubits. And uh, and cubits was the form of measurement at that time. And so God said, I want the, the ark to be so many cubits long and so many cubits high. And uh, I'm very specific about this. And he told Noah that I want you to build this because one day there's going to be rain and a great flood. Now understand that that nothing like that had happened on the face of the earth before that time. And so now God says that Noah, I am going to do something that I haven't done. There's going to be this great flood and I'm going to destroy all that I have created and you and your family alone will be the ones that will be rescued. Because you will find safety from all of this inside this big boat, this great ark. But not only you, because since I intend not to give up on all of humanity and all of creation, I want you to get animals from every species and two by two, male and female, and bring them into this ark. Because I will give 
creation another chance. Amen. Isn't that just like God? And so, and so Noah, uh, we know this story and we, we remember it from being taught. And, and, uh, but however, as we learn of God's move to rescue humanity from the depth, the darkness, and the destruction of sin, rarely was this story taught in connection to the New Testament realities of Christ and believers' baptism. I don't recall in Sunday school ever learning that there was a connection between uh, uh, the the ark and the story of Noah and the the uh, believer and baptism. Those those things weren't brought together for me growing up in in church. And many of us may have been in that same dynamic. But here we see this connection. Now let's consider what Peter says in this passage because they formally did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few that is eight persons were brought safely through water baptism verse 21 which corresponds to this now saves you not as a remove of dirt from the body but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, that's a very important phrase. Don't miss that last phrase, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And uh, one of the reasons why I don't want you to miss that is because there, there are some people that really believe that it is baptism that saves you. But as you look at that last phrase, all of this is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay? Amen. Don't miss that. Peter's not saying that baptism is what saves you. He connects this to the resurrection of Jesus Christ as the saving agent or the life of Jesus as saving agent for all believers. Now, Peter alludes here carefully to God's patience and to God as the one who brought the destruction of the world through the onset of the flood waters. In doing so, as Peter clearly indicates, there were some saved from the destruction and death brought by the water. And these who were saved were who? Noah and his family, his three sons, their wives, Noah and his wife, eight persons in total. And, and here's, here's what Thomas Schreiner has to say about this. He says, the water that deluged the world in Noah's day and through which Noah was saved functions as a model or pattern for Christian believers. So we see how God saved Noah and his family, and that becomes a model or a pattern for how God saves all believers. Amen. Amen. So that, that, that and, and I want you to understand this. When you're reading the new the Old Testament, there are the Old Testament is filled with what we call these Christological passages or these passages that that show us who Jesus Christ really is and what God's plan of salvation was for all of mankind all along. Amen. Amen. So the water of which Peter here speaks relates to the new covenant. Through baptism. 
In fact, Peter uses a surprising statement about baptism saving you. And that's why I said I want to be clear that we're not saved by the act of baptism, but the connection here is to the resurrection, to the shed blood, to the life and the, the, the eternal life of Jesus Christ. Amen. So what does this mean? It is a solid exegetical conclusion. That just as the flood waters brought death, so too do the waters of baptism signify death of our sinful nature. Amen. Just as the waters, the flood brought this great death, we can conclude that the waters of baptism are illustrative of the death of our sin nature. So you go down in the water, signifying the grave that your your sin nature dies, and you arise this new creature in Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. If any man be in Christ, he's what? A new creature. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things become as new. Okay, so we have this new nature, this new this new uh, life, but we die to our sinful nature. Everything, with the exception of Noah and his family, was submerged under the water and died. And so so in that day, the the flood really was indicative of uh, or indicative of of the the water being the instrument that brought about death. And so in baptism, in Christian baptism, the water is illustrative of the death of the believer to sin. So now in the New Testament, the submersion of the believer clearly indicated that symbolic death of the sin nature in the life of the believer in Christ. Now, just so you won't think I made that up. Amen. There is scripture that supports this position very clearly in Romans chapter six. Uh, Verse 3 through 5, we see these words. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, look at this next phrase, were baptized into his death? Okay. Now, verse 4 says, Paul goes on to say, we were buried. Now, think about that. You weren't buried in dirt, but the water signifies a type of burial. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. Now, here's the purpose. Here's the purpose. Look what he says. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness or in newness of life. Seem like we ought to be a little more excited about that part. I'm just, I'm just saying, amen. Amen. We were taken down with Christ in death, and we rise with him in the newness of life. Now, look at this. For if we have been united with him in a death that's like his, right, the dying of ourselves, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And so baptism, amen, teaches us 
that we die like Christ in the grave, but we also rise like Christ. That's critical. God doesn't leave us in the grave no more than he left Christ in the grave. Christ rose and we rise. Clearly, a logical presentation here from the Apostle Paul demonstrates the point that Peter here makes regarding the role of baptism in the believer's life and its connection to what God was doing in the story of Noah. This connection is important for Peter's audience, especially those who were Jewish believers in Christ. Those Jewish believers would have been well acquainted with Noah and his story and therefore would benefit greatly from the connection between the salvation of Noah and their own salvation in Christ. So there's the historical context of this passage. Now, this also helps us understand what the passage is all about because we first understand that as Peter was writing this in this day, those Jewish believers needed to to, to make that connection. As God saved Noah in the Old Testament, so Christ saved you in this new covenant. You've got the old covenant and the new covenant. Come on, give God praise. So Peter connects the baptism of the believer to the rescue of Noah and his family. For the express purpose of demonstrating as Noah was rescued in the ark, we too as believers are rescued in this new ark. Amen. Which is Jesus Christ. Tell somebody, Jesus is the new ark. In fact, as Noah found safety in the ark, we too find safety in Christ. As the as the as the was the saved, as Noah was saved by God in the ark, so too are we saved by God in Christ. As the floodwaters brought death to sinful man, so do the waters of baptism demonstrate the death of our sin nature because of the power and the presence of Christ. Now, if you're not yet convinced. And you need more detail on this. I got an assignment for you. By Tuesday, go online to BethelWeb.org and go under media and messages and click on Pastor Steve's message on this passage. Why? Because he is going to, he's today spending a lot more time on the issue of baptism, but we're going to take a little bit of a turn. Okay, because what I want us to help us understand is how we get to that next step of our life in Christ. What are we doing about the next step? Because many of you in here have already been baptized. Many of you in here have already made a commitment to Jesus Christ. So for our purposes today, here's where we turn. We now ask the important question, what is this next step after baptism of the believer? What should believers do After they've been baptized. Now, many of us grew up in the tradition where after baptism, it was a foregone conclusion that you were received into membership in the local body of Christ. 
or what we call the church. How many people grew up in that tradition? I know I did. Just throw your hand up real fast. You, it was foregone conclusion. After you baptized, you became a church member. They gave you a little certificate, said, hey, welcome to the, welcome to the body. You know, you're a member of the church. And it had a little date on there. They shook your hand, and you're able to have your first communion. Amen? And so, and so we had this, a lot of us grew up in, in traditions similar to that. We got into what we called the church. Not the building in which the church gathered, but the actual living, breathing, and nurturing body of Christ. We became members. Now for sure, this new connection into the church through membership came with certain benefits. Like the American Express card company used to say, membership has its privileges. Amen? We got some privileges. Some, we had some benefits that came with membership. Membership within the local body brought certain important elements into the life of a new believer. Membership gave us a place to belong. We were able to to be a part of a local body. Membership gave us a place to believe, and that is to to feed our belief in the gospel, to continue to encourage us to believe in the gospel of Jesus. Membership gave us a place to fellowship. We were able to be in this community with other believers, and we could see that, that how Christ and the gospel was beginning to to be lived in front of us through the lives of our brothers and sisters. Membership gave us a place to learn. Jesus said this in his word. He says, he says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Membership gave us Sunday school, Bible study, all of these places where we could learn about Jesus Christ, where we can learn about what it is to be a Christian, to walk in this new relationship that we now had with him. Membership gave us a place to grow. To be able to say, praise the Lord, I can measure some maturity in my life. I can see beyond a shadow of a doubt that I am not what I used to be. Somebody ought to get excited right there. I can look at my life and see the work of the Lord being manifest in my life. And being a part of a local body helped me do that. Helped me measure growth. Ephesians chapter 4 says that, that the pastor and the teacher is responsible for helping you measure, helping you grow in the stature of Jesus Christ. And so we, we learn how to be more like Christ, how to grow, what the, what the uh, direction of our growth should be. We learn all of that in membership. However, this might come as some surprise to you, that over the past 20 or so years, we find that the idea of church membership has kind of lost its luster. It's almost as if Somebody has taken the shine of what it is to be a church member. So much so that even people who are members don't talk about being a member. We talk about that's where I go to church. 
Amen. Now, I know, I know there's nobody in here, but occasionally, <laughs> occasionally believers will get into these conversations with, with unbelievers or people who are, are kind of the lone wolf Christian. You know, uh, you don't have to be a part of the church. I'm not a member in church. I just, I, I'm, in the, I'm in the big body of Christ. That's where I am. I'm in the, I don't have to be a part of a local assembly. You know, you know I'm, I'm, I'm bigger than that. I don't have to come under any leadership. Oh, it's getting quiet in here now. But, but see, but see, you get in those conversations and, and it's almost like you're made to feel that something is, is gone wrong in your life because you connect to a local body of believers. This has been happening right under our noses for the last 20 years. In case you don't, you don't believe me, let me give you some, some statistics that back this up. Every year, 2.7 million church members fall into inactivity. Two point, every year, 2.7 million people fall into inactivity. That is, you know, they get that inactive status. You know, I, I, I don't come that often. I'm not participating in anything. I'm not connected to anything. I'm certainly not committed to anything. Now, this translates into the realization that people are leaving the church. And many, my brothers and sisters, are leaving as hurting and wounded victims of some kind of abuse, disillusionment, or just plain neglect. They are leaving because they're wounded. They're leaving because maybe there's been some type of abuse in the church. Maybe there's been disillusionment. And simply because many times we are responsible for being neglectful of new people. You don't have to say anything. The Lord told me that was right. (laughs) From 1990 to 2000... The combined membership of all Protestant denominations in the USA declined by almost 5 million members, nearly 10% in 10 years. While the U.S. population during that same time increased by 24 million or 11%. 20.5% of Americans frequently attended church in 1995, 19% of Americans frequently attended church in 1999, 18% of Americans frequently attended church in 2002. And the projections say that by 2025, we will only have 15% of Americans will frequently attend church. Now think about that. What does this mean? It means that while 60% or better of the people living in America profess to be Christian, few attend church on a frequent basis and even fewer become members of a local church. Houston, we have a problem. We have a problem. And don't be fooled. By the fact that we have more mega churches than ever before. Be aware 
that for all of the mega churches we have, we're losing the neighborhood church. Where do you think these people are coming from? If it was the result of a great revival in America, we'd see some differences in our communities, wouldn't we? It's not a great, amen, it's not a great revival that coming from smaller churches to larger ones. Why are people not becoming church members? Nearly every mega church, and I'm talking about churches with 2,000 people or more, Nearly every mega church has this problem, and Bethel is no exception. Here's the problem. We have people who attend on a regular basis, but they don't take the step to become a member. If you knew what the real membership roster roster looked like at Bethel Church, you might be surprised. Every week, Our average attendance at Bethel Church at all four campuses is over 2,800 people. We may not have half that many that are actually members of Bethel Church. Houston, we have a problem. Look at this. Here are a few of the reasons why I think that is the case. I'm going to throw this out to you in, in, in some degree of transparency. So, so put your seatbelt on. <laughs> One of the reasons why this exists is what I call the cult of personality. Celebrity in ministry leads people to follow people and not Christ. We have more celebrity ministers than ever before. I, I mean, just, I mean, reality shows being done by preachers, the preachers of L.A. and all this stuff. Just a celebrity. Yeah, ministers are going around with great entourages and got people following them around and all this kind of thing. Like, oh, my goodness. Wow. This is the this is the man of God. Some of these brothers are so deep, you need sonar to find them. That's going to catch up with you later. I mean, the cult of personality. Let me tell you something about us as Americans. We love celebrities. We love, don't y'all look at me like we don't. We have people that are celebrities that comment on spiritual things that they have nothing or no knowledge of whatsoever, but because a celebrity said it. It must be true. A Hollywood actor said you don't have to go to church. You can be a good Christian at home. And we say, well, since that actor or actress said it, it must be true. We love celebrities. So the cult of personality creates this dynamic where people are following people and not Christ. We follow people so much so that we don't even have an idea of what the true doctrine of God's word is saying. 
We just accept it. Now, it's one thing when Paul ran across a bunch of people called the Bereans, they were they were they were listening to him as he shared the gospel. But one thing they did that Luke took note of, he said they went back and checked the scriptures to see if what Paul was saying was true. There was no cult of personality in the Berean situation. We could learn from that. I don't want you to sit here and say, just because Pastor Ray said it, it must be true. Go back and check the scriptures for yourself. The second thing that I think happens to us is, is the desire for low commitment and high benefit. <laughs> Amen. We want low commitment. Don't ask me to do anything. But I want all the benefits of church membership. And see, low commitment says, I don't have to join up. I don't have to belong to a ministry. I don't have to do anything like that. But as soon as my, my life starts falling apart, I need the pastor's phone number. I want the pastor to come see about me. Low, oh, so y'all ain't say nothing on that one, did you? Low commitment, but high benefits. And that's, that's, kind of, that's kind of the American way. People want all they can get for the least amount of personal cost and sacrifice. We don't want to give, but we want to get. You say something about, about giving and offering, and some of us will walk out of here and talk, see, I knew they wasn't all about money. This, this campus takes one offering, two offerings once a month for benevolent. And you still have people that are uncomfortable in giving one time. I've been in church services where they would count the money in front of the altar. <laughs> and if they don't have enough, uh, Brother Deacon, pass that tray around there again. We <laughs> pass, pass that thing around. Some of y'all in here hold it out. <laughs> Ushers close the door. <laughs> Nobody getting out till we get this money. I've been in those services, honey. I, <laughs> I can say this, they always got the money too. <laughs> but I mean that that's a that's we want we want all the benefits and low commitment. The other thing that I think feeds this, this dynamic where people aren't becoming a part of the church in terms of membership is the indifference and insensitivity of the church regarding its own wounded. We become indifferent, especially if the crowd is large. We lose one or two people. We shrug our shoulders and say, oh, well, maybe they got offended. They need to get their act together. They need, some, they need to understand that it's not always going to be their way. Well, Jesus tells a story about a shepherd that had a hundred sheep. And one of them got lost. I wish I had somebody here. And he says that that shepherd left the 99 behind and went into the country where the wolves were. To go get one. 
every one of us is responsible for the one. Who did you go get today? Who have you gone to get in your life and say, I'm not going to let the enemy or the wolf steal you away, even if I have to leave the 99 vulnerable? We have hurt people. We've, we've had our rules and regulations so stringent that we've broken the hearts of new and exuberant believers. So much so to the point where we haven't taken the time to really tell them and show them how to be a part of this body. We just expect because you got saved, you ought to automatically know. There's not a person in here that automatically do that when you got saved. Not one. And, and I grew up in the church. I didn't automatically know. Somebody had to pull me aside and say, wait a minute. This is how we do it. And they did it in a loving way. Not the way that we do sometimes when we tell somebody else about the mess up of that person. I don't know who they think they are. They just got in this church. We get jealous of giftings. God gives us what we need. I prayed mightily for this church, this body, this campus, not to have people who were just like me, but people who didn't have, who had the gifts that I didn't have. Why? Because I know when everybody has gifts and everybody's together, the body of Christ is magnified in the community because we all are using our gifts. I, uh, I have personally gone through how people act when you've been wounded. We will let the devil rip somebody apart right in front of us. They can be down on the ground hurting. And we, the people of God, will step over them and keep going. Let me tell you something. Be careful. Who you skip, that's hurting. Amen. One day your time might come. Listen, listen, I'm going to tell this to you. The enemy wants nothing more than to cut off and attack those people who are serving as leaders in a church. Over the last year or so, in Fort Lauderdale, two mega church pastors have had their careers ended because of infidelity. Now, you know what the response of a lot of believers were? Well, I guess I'm going to throw away every book they ever wrote. Let me help you understand something. We are all sinners saved by grace. Some of the greatest work in the body of Christ has come from people who've been run over by Satan, who've been, been hurt, been wounded, and seen the glory and the grace of God in their recovery, in their comeback. They have seen God do great things in their life. We need to hear their message. How dare we? Get so high and mighty that we say they're done forever. 
I'm so glad that when I was on the shelf in the store marked damaged goods, y'all ain't getting this. When I was there on that shelf marked damaged goods, Here's what Jesus did. He went into that store and said, give me that one that's on the shelf called damaged goods. I'm going to make them again in my image and my likeness. I didn't intend to do all that, but these are but a few examples of why church membership may be declining. Now, let's look and see. I want to give you five quick things that there's a reason for church membership. I want to give those to you right now. First of all, first of all, the first reason is that church, the church is to discipline its members. We need discipline. We need structure. Just as a family disciplines their children. Parents, don't let your children grow up without discipline. They become dangerous people. Not only to you, but to others in the community and to themselves. My parents could have said yes to a lot of things, but they said no on purpose. Because I had to learn how to deal with adversity. I had to have some discipline in my life. I couldn't have everything that we want. One of the greatest problems with the emerging generation is that we've given these children everything that they want and they don't understand when they get the word no. If you look at this in Matthew 18, verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Church membership is implied by the, way of, by the way, the church is supposed to discipline its members. The church or the ecclesia appears to be the final court of appeal here in matters of church authority as it relates to membership. If there is no church membership, how can you define the group that will take up this sensitive and weighty matter of exhorting the unrepentant person And finally rendering a judgment about his standing in the community. It's hard to believe that just anyone who showed up claiming to be a Christian could be part of that gathering. Surely the church must be a definable group to handle such a weighty matter. You know who you mean when you take it to the church. You know what he's saying. The church membership there is implied. Now the second reason we ought to be church members is Christians are required to submit to their leaders. Amen. 
Church membership is implied in the biblical requirement of Christians to be submitted to a group of church leaders, elders, or pastors. The point here is that without membership, who is it that the New Testament is referring to who must submit to a specific group of leaders? Some kind of expressed willingness or covenant or agreement or commitment, that is, membership, has to precede a person's submission to a group of leaders. In other words, if you're not a member, why would you be encouraged to submit to leadership? Think about that. Every place you are a member, there's leadership. Even the citizenship you have in America comes with leadership. Amen. And so you have, so you have to do this. So, so consider the way the New Testament talks about the relationship of the church to her leaders. Hebrews 13 and 17 says this. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. Leaders will have to give an account of, of, how, they lead, or, or, of how they've led you and how you've grown. Uh, second thing is, in 1 Thessalonians 5, 12, and 13, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you, and look at that phrase, and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. 1 Timothy 5 and 17 says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. How is this leadership and this submission going to work if there is no membership defining who has made the commitment to be led and who has been chosen as leaders? Membership defines that. If we downplay the importance of membership, it is difficult to see how we could take these commands to submit to, and to lead Seriously and practically. The third thing that I want to share with you. Shepherds are required to care for their flock. Okay? Church membership is implied in the way that the New Testament requires elders to care for the flock in their charge. Of course, elders can extend their love to anyone and everyone and should within the limits of their ability. But the question is whether the Bible tells elders that they have or that they are to have a special responsibility and care for a certain group, a group of members. Consider Acts 20 and 28, where Paul tells elders how to care for their flock. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Look at this. To care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Now, there's no way. That Paul's talking to the group of Ephesian elders and telling them to care for every Christian in the world. He's talking about those under their watch, under their care. This verse does not say the elders cannot visit unbelievers or those who are not yet members, but it does make clear that their first responsibility is to a particular flock. How are they to know who their flock is? We or who are we as elders and pastors responsible for? For whom will we give an account to God? The way Peter speaks to the elders in 
First Peter five is even clearer. He says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you not for shameful gain, but eagerly not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Those in your charge, meaning your portion, your lot, implies that the elders knew from whom they were responsible. And so they, this is just another way of talking about church membership. The fourth thing that stands out is that in the Bible, there's this metaphor, this metaphor of the human body. Church membership is implied in the metaphor of the body in 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 31. The original meaning of the word member is member of a body, like a hand and foot and eye and ear. That's the imagery behind the word member in that text. Verse 12, just as the body is one and has many members. And all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Now, the body's got many members. So there are many hands, many eyes, many feet in the body of Christ. So he could not be talking about just universal membership in the body of Christ. Because you know what? If you're a foot, you're not the only foot. If you're a hand, you're not the only hand. There are many other hands that are in the body of Christ. And so what is he talking about? He's talking about this thing is so big, it's so big, that we've got these local expressions of membership in the body of Christ. So the question this imagery raises for the local church that Paul is describing, who intends to be treated as a hand or foot or eye or ear of this body? There is a unity, an organic relationship implied in the imagery of the body. There is something unnatural about a Christian attaching himself to a body of believers and not being a member of that body. Now, I'm just going to let that marinate for a minute. My hand cannot say, I've been with you 53 years, but I decided I'm not going to be a member of your body. <laughs> Can't do it. Can't do it because everywhere I go, praise God, my hand goes with me. My hand doesn't decide, I'm going to stay home today. So we got to understand that. Now, here's the last reason, and we're, and we're done. Church membership is important because there was a tremendous cost paid for that connection. Tremendous cost. Verse 4 in 1 Corinthians says, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not have all the same function. So we, though many, look at this phrase, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Through the sacrifice of Christ, we as believers have the great blessing of being connected to each other. It costs the blood of our Savior for this connection that we have. Let us not neglect this connection because it costs more than any of us could pay. 
we are members one of another in Christ, but because of Christ. Because of him and what he did, I can say that you are truly my brothers and my sisters. Amen. Praise God. Because of what he did, I can say that you who are here today and you can look at your neighbor who is in Christ with you and say, it doesn't matter what you look like. You are still my brother or my sister. What a beautiful kaleidoscope that God painted when he got ready to, to, to make this body of Christ. God said, I need some of everything in that body. I need men. I need women. I need black. I need white. I need brown. I need one of all of my creatures in that body. Why? Because I want the whole world to know that this is what my son died for. I want the whole world to know that my son died so there would not be an enmity between me and my, my creation. Nor will there be an enmity between people because of ethnicity and race. There is no enmity because Christ tore it down. He destroyed all of it. That price was so high. He gave his whole life. And shed his blood on the cross. That we can be connected. Stand on your feet all over this room. And this is done. Because we serve. A great God. We're just going to sing a little bit of that. How great is our God. And after which. Dex has got a couple of announcements for us. And those of you who are considering baptism or becoming a part of the local assembly say I want to I want to be a part of this I want to be a member you can meet us in the prayer room and we'll spend some time talking about the next steps but I pray that you will consider that your baptism the next step is for you to be in that local body so you can connect to what God has for you because this connection was paid for by his blood.